everybody. Juliet here with another quick note before we start today's episode about the purge election year. Uh, as you'll hear, we do talk a lot about capitalism and systems of oppression and lack of autonomy and uh, all sorts of things about the uh, American experiment, as they call it in this episode. But we did record it uh, prior to June 24th, the day that the Supreme Court handed down the decision on the Dobbs case, which struck down Roe v. Wade. Uh, so you won't hear us talk about that decision in specificity, because even though we had the leak of the decision, uh, the draft decision, it had not been formally handed down yet. Um, that said, Teresa and I are just absolutely shaken by this decision and the larger implications for uh, our country, both for people with uteruses and uh, other people who will be likely affected by future decisions that uh, this current decision opens the door to. We wholeheartedly believe love is love, abortion is healthcare, and that every person has a choice in regard to their health care, and that choice is their own. If any one of us is not entitled to bodily autonomy or civil rights, then truly none of us are. Please keep fighting, and please take care of yourself in that fight. Uh, we've got some links in the show notes if you want to know more about how to help, how to get involved. And although it seems a little weird to now talk about a horror film. That is what we do here on this podcast. And that's one of the ways that the two of us make sense of the world and uh, process the real life horrors around us. So let's get to it. Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode. And of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. And today we are bringing you, for once, a movie that I've seen that Teresa hasn't until <laughs> five minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, I saw the beginning part of it years and years ago, but I had never seen the whole movie. So this is the one time, folks, write that down in your history yes, books. Yes, in your Attack of the Final Girls history <laughs> log. I keep it in my scrapbook. <laughs> <laughs> what are we watching? Today we're talking about The Purge Election Year, which came out in 2016. The third of The Purge movies, release-wise, uh, chronologically, it falls kind of in the middle of the series. And my personal favorite of all of The Purge movies. So I had never seen The Purge Election Year. I had seen The Purge. And then I had watched with Juliet, what was it, The First Purge? Yeah. and. The Forever Purge, which we watched those together, but I had never seen Election Year. And I've never seen the second one, too. But I got all of the the bits, the, like the things I need to know in order to come into this movie adequately. So 
Um, I was excited to watch it, though, because I did enjoy the very first Purge movie. I like the other two Purge movies, too. I appreciate the premise. Yeah. I like that it's sort of an original premise on uh, Horror Spin, because I think in the past, movies like this that kind of deal with some similar things have a tendency to be like drama action movies and less like horror movies. So I appreciate the idea. It's funny because I was telling you as we were watching this one, when The Purge came out in 2013, Mm -hmm. I was still, I mean, this was a little after Hostel and the Saw movies and all that, but there was still kind of that moment in horror where, you know, everyone was crying torture porn or whatever. And movies like that, I'm really hot or cold about in general. And so when The Purge came out, I was just like, I have no interest in this. This doesn't look like something I would like. I'm just going to skip it. And my partner went and saw it without me and was like, no, 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 no. This movie has so much to say. You would love it. Trust me. And it took me several months of him being like, no, seriously, you would love it. No, seriously, we own the DVD. No, seriously, please sit down and watch it because this movie has something to say and you will seriously enjoy it. And I did. And so I really liked the first one. I liked anarchy and by the time this one came around well so the kind of thing about the release of the purge election year was that originally it was going to be the prequel Mm -hmm. uh, which ended up being the fourth movie the first purge but when they got frank griot to sign back on they decided to go ahead and make the third one uh what became election year and so i was like kind of excited about a prequel but then I started to hear rumblings like, oh, it's not going to be a prequel. It's going to be a continuation of the air quotes modern day story. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I started to think about the timing of the release. And I was like, ooh, this is coming out in an election year. It's And this is a highly contentious election year. And The Purge is a very political horror film franchise. Are they going to do anything? And then they announced the name was going to be The Purge election year. I was like okay, they're going for it. <laughs> and, then, and then the trailer came out. I was like, wow, they're really going for it. And I am here for this. Yeah. Uh, because I love a good political horror film. And I also love things that make it feel like you're watching the West Wing. Yes. But with horror. Yeah. Like the West Wing. But like if Martin Sheen's character got dropped into like some really messed up stuff. Yes. And <laughs> he was just like, oh, crap. Um, be like no. President Bartlett and CJ trying to survive. Yes, yes, that'd be great. Can we get like a deep fake with? Oh my god! <laughs> the- Someone has written this fan fiction somewhere. Oh yeah, dear it's internet, please direct me to it. <laughs> um, just to quickly go over the cast, we have Frank Rio reprising his role as Sergeant Leo Barnes. He's protecting Elizabeth Mitchell, who's playing Senator Charlie Roan. Senator Roan's sort of our quote-unquote hero of the story. She's a senator trying to be elected to president, and sh- the first thing she wants to do is stop the purge because she sees all of the bad it's doing. And then we have sort of our cool, like, smaller story. So, like, Senator Mitchell's sort of the big story, but then we have a smaller story that's more relatable with McKady Williamson, who plays Joe Dixon, the owner of a, a local deli in the area that they're supposed to be in. It's supposed to be D.C. I read that they actually filmed it in Rhode Island. Surprisingly oh, that's interesting. Enough. Um, that makes sense. I can see parts of, yeah, parts of... Like, more residential areas in yeah. D.C. would probably look like cities in Rhode Island. Yeah, parts of Providence definitely yes. look like parts of D.C. 
Um, and then we have Marcos, who is played by Joseph Julian Soria. He is Joe's only employee. And then we have Betty Gabriel playing Lainey Rucker, who is sort of Joe's like unofficial child, unofficial daughter, also sort of protector and friend to Marcos. So we have a story where it's Purge Night, of course. We can't have a Purge movie without yeah. <laughs> starting on Purge Night. Although we don't hear the sirens in this one. We do at the beginning, but not at the end. Oh, you're right, you're right. Yeah, you're right. on the okay. TV. We only hear them on the TV. Okay, yeah, you're right. So we have Senator Mitchell, who's locking down with Frank uh, Leo Barnes, who um, is like, you can't leave the house. And he's like very strict. And she's like, no, it shouldn't be like that. If I hide, then they'll know that I'm, you know, I'm a coward, blah, blah, blah. And then we have Joe and Marcos who are protecting Joe's deli. And Lainey is in a, like a medic van. And they're supposed to be, she says later on in the movie that there's like an unwritten rule of the purge that you don't attack medics who are trying to help. They kind of all come together because there's an attempt on Senator Mitchell's life. And she and a wounded Leo Barnes escape, but they need help, obviously. And then they meet up with Joe and Marcos, who help shelter them in Joe's, inside of Joe's deli. And chaos ensues. (laughs) Yes. Chaos is a hallmark of the Purge movies. Yes. Which the Purge movies are great because while not an entirely original idea, like there's lots of movies that are about like government coups and what would happen if there were state sanctioned violence. This is really the first one I think that they really hardcore lean into the horror aspect of it by planting a square in the trials and tribulations of what would it feel like to be in the shoes of regular folks just trying to survive. So it's definitely a new take on it, I think. And it's a a horror franchise that has been very successful. They made a TV show after they made, I think it was after the first purge, right? Yeah. And then they later made the forever purge, Mm -hmm. which was like kind of a totally different beast, but in the same universe, but like a little different than the four that came before it. Yeah, it takes place eight years after the purge election year and kind of furthers it out because you see the kind of pushing out in the sort of canonical order from the purge where you're with one family in one house anarchy where you're in a series of neighborhoods with different neighbors and people from the community intersecting to election year where you're dealing with like the u.s government and then in the forever purge we go to texas and we're dealing with more like the border and things like that, right. you know, that becomes more of an issue in that one. Yeah. You know, they, they always say the curse of the third movie. And I don't think that this one slows down at all from the first two. I know it's not like chronologically in canon order, but I don't think it slows down at all. Although the first purge came out like a couple of years after this, I think 2018 is when the first purge came out. I don't know why I thought it was 19. Everything before the pandemic happened in 2019, apparently, in my mind. <laughs> It's interesting, though, that the series, like the the very first movie starts in the middle of our story already having had a purge for yeah. several years. And it's like already kind of baked into what's happening. It's not a new thing. So we're kind of plunked into like, okay, the, just accept that this is happening. Don't worry about what happened before. This is what's happening now. And then in this movie, we get to see what the fallout of that has been. Like truly what have all like, what has the effect been to 
both senators and government officials, but also to just your regular folks. Like, how has that been baked into your normal everyday life to worry about in March, the purge? Yeah. March 21st is always the day. Yeah. So before we crack into any more specifics with this, I'm just going to go ahead and lay it out. There has been this really big push lately, I think, for people to say, like, horror is not political. Don't make horror political. Which Juliet and I both rolled our eyes super, super hard. Yeah. Because for both of us, not only do we see horror as, like, one of the original ways to deal with politics in film without, like, saying the quiet parts out loud, also being white women in the podcast space and taking space away from, like, cis white men is a little bit of a political message almost for us to come out with our, you know, with our opinions and to take up space. It's political. It's our way of saying we think that we deserve to have a space here too. Anyways, I digress. Horror always has been political. Yeah, it really has. I mean... When we look back to the earliest films, you know, they were commenting on, you know, the fears of society writ large, the anxieties, the worries. Sometimes people were making horror films to comment directly on politics because fiction was the only way they could do that. So, yeah, I have always seen horror as political and my favorite horror has something to say about the world. And uh, I don't know how you can comment on anything in the world these days without being air quotes political, because we live in a very polarized and charged time, you know, more so than ever. Yeah. And when you live in a capitalist society, too, it like, you can't peel horror away from capitalism right in our society especially now we're in late stage capitalism where we're experiencing so much that is challenging and awful and does not work about capitalism it's impossible not to bake that into any horror movie that you're making exactly as a part of horror and like the purge series for example i feel like does such a good job of heightening the anxieties about living in a capitalist, conservative Christian as mask for white supremacist country. Mm -hmm. What this franchise and many others do is they take the facts of the world around us and they heighten them to make it scary and make it entertaining. But they let us sort of experience the anxieties of that and commune with those anxieties in a way that we don't get to do on a daily basis because we all have to work because capitalism. Right. It's certainly a movie that plays with making a very scary concept, like starting with a scary concept. I was telling Juliet about this while we were watching. So if you look at the first Purge movie, it's introducing a concept that's scary to everybody because what the Purge is supposed to be is equal opportunity terror for all. Right. So everybody is supposed to be scared about being hurt, being killed, their property being damaged during this thing, which that in and of itself is kind of a scary concept that people are willing to risk their lives and limbs for their own property because once again, capitalism, Yeah. because there's no backup, there's no way, there's nothing, there's no safety net, which is something that you hear a lot in economics is a safety net. And if you don't have one, then you do have to risk your life for your property, which is silly. It's silly that we have to do that, not right, silly that right. folks do that. Yeah, um, yeah. But on the other hand, the purge could have, the first purge and the subsequent movies could absolutely have 
put this in an alt reality. It could have put it in sort of like a Judge Dread situation yeah. where we're like, this is 400 years in the future and everybody's on drugs and we all live in these giant skyscrapers or whatever. They could have totally done that. But instead, they rejected that and said, no, not only are we not going to shy away from the fact that this is obviously going to have sociopolitical commentary, we are going to completely lean into that and make that what we focus on in the subsequent movies. And I love that. Yeah, I love that it is so, it's so near future that truly the purge is the only piece of fiction. You know, the purge and the new founding fathers taking power, which even that is like barely fiction, if you ask me. But it's not, we never see technology that we don't have right now. You know, there are no robot cops patrolling the streets during the purge. There mm -hmm. are no, there's nothing futuristic. Poor people are poor. Uh, people are marginalized. The rich are getting richer. And basically everything is the same except that this ruling party called the New Founding Fathers has enacted this thing called the Purge. Yeah. That's the only fiction of it, I guess. Yeah. And I think that that, like, if you look at it from far away rather than close up, because I've been thinking about it in a very close up way. If you take a couple of steps back and think about it, that's almost the most scary part of this. Yeah. Is that this is so relatable that... Sometimes when you watch a horror movie, you'd be like, ah, oh, that would never get that way. Like, that's a little bit too far left or right, you know? This is not like that. Yeah. This absolutely feels like, no, we're only a couple steps away from this. Yeah, and a lot of it takes the same elements that make a zombie movie scary, but without the zombies. Yeah. It's just people. Yeah. It's, it kind of reminds me of, in that regard, 28 Days Later a little bit, which did have zombies, but the way they handled the zombies was more analogous to humans and their own rage. Mm -hmm. And that is what makes it scary, is that it's not zombies, it's not monsters. We are the monsters. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I'll just say this out loud again, too. This was during an election year. It was released yep. during an election year. And I would like to say that it was released during the election year where yeah. we, we had Hillary Clinton battling Donald Trump for the presidency. It was a time when I think for the most part, at least for people in my life or in my immediate circle, it was pretty preposterous to think that Donald Trump could be elected at that point in time. This was also July. So just keep that yeah. in mind. So five months, four months in the lead up, you know, four to five months before the actual election happened. So we had four months before the actual election. And we all thought it was like not going to be a thing. Like yeah. it, it was impossible. And this movie being shot and released prior to that, I think that if they had waited, they probably would have leaned in a little bit harder to the absurdity yeah. of what ended up being this circus show, you know. And then eventually when he became president and then all of this craziness happened inside the White House, it was like every single, I mean, honestly, like we're two years out of, or like a year, I guess, no, I guess it's just a year. Oh my God. It's been only a year and a half. <laughs> we're only a year and a half out of it. And sometimes I look back and I'm like, that didn't happen. I know. Yeah. So we think, like, we're watching this movie, and I'm sure you were watching it in 2016 thinking, like, this could never happen. The scariest part of this movie is that during 
times when Donald Trump was president. I absolutely think that this was just on the verge of happening. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about the January 6th insurrection. Well, so I have not watched this movie since January 6th. Okay. And that was really interesting. As I said, this is one of my favorites, but as I've said with a couple of other movies, I think I mentioned this with Day of the Dead, too. There were a lot of movies that for a variety of reasons, both during the Trump presidency and during the pandemic, even though they were my favorites, I was like, I just, I can't engage with this right now. Mm -hmm. Like, this was one of those movies, like, my love for this is pure and true, and yet I was kind of like, eh. And I was actually thinking about watching it again after we saw The Forever Purge. Mm Which I liked. Not as much as I liked this one. Uh, But I just hadn't gotten back around to it. And so I hadn't watched this since January 6th. And just the eeriness of some of the language and some of the rhetoric. It's not to say that this movie predicted that. I think what this movie did is that it fictionalized and highlighted uh, a lot of stuff that was happening a little less in the spotlight that then... We got to see, you know, clear as day in the daylight, the ugly truth of it on January 6th. Yeah, totally. Like seeing the mercenaries that come after Senator Mitchell, seeing their gear, their like white supremacist patches and tattoos and things like that. And knowing that during January 6th, there were organized groups of people who absolutely looked like that it's like how could we have known five years in the future that that was going to be something that echoed real life and really posed a threat to democracy and posed a threat a bodily threat a violent you know physical threat to our congress yeah it was terrifying i mean as like stuff started to unfold it was like chilling like i honestly i couldn't engage with it because i didn't believe it i'm like this is i don't understand like and as things started to pour in like accounts and video and things like that i'm just like how is this possible and now we're looking at a movie that was made five years before that and we're like that was the first step well and moreover you know the sort of idea that we see unfold throughout all of the purge movies is how easily everyday people who consider themselves nice people when given a shred of permission go absolutely wild and do things that, you know, people who would consider themselves. I mean, in the opening scene, the language that the minister, the head of the New Founding Fathers uses to me presents it's it's great in the way that it's written he uses very 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 harsh language in regards to charlie in regards to the people that are supporting her and yet this is somebody that you're also supposed to believe he's a new founding father he's the head of the government he's a christian he's this he's that you know um and just the way that we behave either behind closed doors or out in public if we're given permission Mm -hmm. um I think this movie was really on to something and we saw that again, like in the light of day on January 6th. Yeah, like it's one thing to say I'm a nice person or I'm a good person, but then to hear somebody give you a little bit of permission and then maybe like pander to your darker side or your darker desires absolutely makes it so that you're like, oh no, yeah, maybe I can do this outside because 
all of these other people are cheering and I can hear them feeding into this, even though this is a disgusting idea or terrible or harmful in any way, but they're cheering. So that means it must be good or it must be okay. So yeah, what an interesting way to show like how easily it would be for people to fall in these pits of darkness. And to be used as pawns for people in power Mm -hmm. to destroy not just the enemies of the people in power, but also to destroy themselves. Yeah. Because they are ultimately disposable to those in power. Yeah. And we see that later on in this movie, too. As the movie progresses and we sort of see, like, the... We see Lainey sort of um, giving us an insight into what the lives of the purgers are like during the purge night as she's doing triage throughout the city. We also see later on in the movie... The minister is doing like this sermon at this gigantic church and all these people are just um, smiling and just beaming at the fact that they're literally about to dispose of many people in front of all of them and give them all the chance to actually murder someone. And they seem to be just ecstatic about this. The other part is Juliet filled me in on some of the things happened in the second movie, people sacrificing themselves for large sums of cash so that their families or what have you can survive afterwards. The capitalism that surrounds the circumstances of the purge is disgusting. Yeah, well, we see that in the first one with Ethan Hawke's character you know, living very comfortably because he sells purge protection gear to other people at a very, very high price. We see that in this one with Joe as a small business owner being, you know, suddenly having his purge insurance rates go up on his business the day before the purge, meaning that he can't afford it. And that if his business is destroyed during the purge, he loses everything. Yeah. Funny side note, the system that Senator Mitchell uses in this movie is by the same company that Ethan Hawke works for in the first Purge, which is kind of funny because it didn't work out very well for Ethan Hawke in the first movie. No, um, Or for his family in general. But also the other part is um, like the Purge tourism. They're talking about having people come from other countries to participate in the Purge, which is gross to think that people would want to come here because in my mind I'm thinking like well I'm going to leave I'm going to schedule my vacation around March 21st how yeah. about that I will go to a country that does not participate in the purge well now you have tons of people flying in because they want to participate in that like gross violence wild yeah I would love to know the economics of that too like how hard would it be like airfare rate like do they make oh, airfare yeah. go way up of ahead course. of the purge I'm sure they do yeah Gas prices. Oh, yeah. Skyrocket. Yep. Yep. Airfare, I'm sure. Just cost of living in other places, probably hotels and Airbnbs and all that would probably get to be really expensive. So I think it would be a worldwide thing. It would be a worldwide just increase of everything. And it's just just disgusting to think it's not only just people who are directly profiting off of the evil like maybe you know the mega corporation higher ups and things like that but also on the minute level and the other thing i was thinking about during this particular movie is the cleanup involved afterwards yeah because like there's a part where they have like the purge cleanup service where they're collecting bodies 
But also, you know, we see during the movie when Senator Mitchell is in the medic van, she sees a tree that's full of hanging bodies. And I'm like, who's going to go and clean up those bodies? So that has to be a booming business, too. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember which one it is. We see the cleanup van in this one. It might it might be anarchy. They're all blurring together at this point. <laughs> uh, where we do see cleanup crews start to come out. I think it's I think it's an anarchy because in this one, uh, this is the only Purge movie where we don't hear the siren. Well, the only of the original trilogy mm-hmm. where we don't hear the siren that signals the end of the Purge. Mm-hmm. We flash ahead instead. But I'm pretty sure it's anarchy. The very pivotal moment of the scene is when the Purge stops. Mm-hmm. And I believe that film does end with like the cleanup fans and you start to see like what that process looks like. So that has to be a money making. Oh, yeah, I would assume so. And one of the things that we don't really deal with, I don't think that they say it out loud in this movie. But one thing I was thinking about in terms of capitalism in this movie, the price that the people who are contracted to protect you have to pay yeah. So like the whole movie revolves around Senator Mitchell and how everybody is trying to protect her because she wants to end the purge and they're on her side. They also want to end the purge because it's terrible. It's ruining their communities. It's killing people that they love and it's costing them tons of money and ruining their lives. So it's like, yes, we want to stop this. But the entire movie surrounds Senator Mitchell and Leo Barnes protecting her at the expense of so many people oh, around yeah. her. Yeah. And yes, she is a very she's a VIP, obviously. She you know, we want her to be elected. We want her to end the purge. But I just can't help but think of all of the good people that had to be sacrificed in order to lift her up, which is sort of the message of this movie. It's like, are you okay with sacrificing a certain number of people in order to keep a better level of peace in the world? And then it's like, yeah, but Senator Mitchell has so many people around her die because of who she is. Yep. But that's the price that she's willing to pay. Yeah. So very interesting because she has like tons of bodyguards outside. They're all killed by the mercs that come. Frank Rio is like mortally wounded. Um, Yeah, he should have died like six times in this movie. (laughs) He's been, he bled for two hours. Yeah, basically. (laughs) Joe... Joe's a casualty. Um, Several of the people who were hostages were casualties. The person that was murdered before her by the the minister, another casualty. I mean, honestly, you could just, you know, tick them off on your hands. Like, there's so many people who have to give their lives for her. And another thing is she winds up at that underground triage center where they're, like, helping the wounded. And it's supposed to be, like, a secret, untouchable location But then while they're there, the government semis full of government operatives find that they're there. Yep. And they get ready to go. And and they're like, okay, you got to evacuate all your people. And I think it's Angel who says, well, we can't move the wounded. And immediately Leo's just like, all right, we got to get out of here. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just like, well, I don't care about them. It's like the Marvel movie thing. And it's funny because they do eventually attempt to deal with this in the Marvel movies with the whole Sarkovia agreement thing. But it's like, how many people, like when the Avengers save us from the bad guy, how many people get hurt, uh, killed, or lose property in the process? It's like the same thing. Just like in um, 
It was a Captain America and Winter Soldier. Is that what it's called? Falcon and Winter Fal- Soldier. Falcon and Winter Soldier. Yeah. yeah. I don't know why. Well, it's because he becomes, becomes yes. America. <laughs> <laughs> but in the Falcon and Winter Soldier series, they even deal with that. Like, yeah. in the post-snap world, when everybody comes back and they're displaced, that people have been carrying on for five years without them. This is sort of a similar thing where we're dealing with situations where it's like, we don't have a safety net to fall back on. The government is not there to help pick us up. These rich folks down the street, you know, they have these, you know, they have the ability to both keep themselves safe during purge night. They can keep their property safe during purge night. They can afford these extra measures that you and I would not be able to afford. They can afford personal protection, a guard, something like that. You and I would never be able to afford something like that. And it happens every year is the other part about it. This is not a once in a lifetime extraordinary natural disaster or something like that. This is literally something that happens every March and yeah. it has been happening I think for like I think the estimate at this point is that it by the purge election year we are on the 25th purge oh my god yeah. so let's say your business or your home gets $30,000 worth of damage from looters right. or people setting it on fire or whatever there is no way that you could come back from $30,000 worth of damage every year. Exactly. There's no way. Exactly. If you could do it once, the work wouldn't even be done to rebuild it by the time the next purge rolled around. Yeah. And the thing with a purge is psychologically, you're taking years, lifetimes, generations of hatred and anger and bias, and you're baking it into one night. But as we see... During, like, right immediately before the purge, Joe has these two girls come in and they want to shoplift. And Joe and Lainey kind of stop them. And these girls are, like, nasty. They're disgusting. Like, just not respectful. Terrible girls. (laughs) Like, psychopaths. Yeah. And they tell him that they're going to come and get him later. And it's like, you're taking out all of this vengeance and, like, long, simmering, boiled hatred. You're trying to take that out in one night. But then if you don't, you still carry that. It's not like you, you know, you flip a switch at the end and you're just like, okay, well, all of it's gone. You're going to carry that with you year after year after year. Well, when you think about it, those girls have never lived in a world without the purge. Yeah. Given their age. Yeah. So that's their solution for things. They probably can be as nasty as possible because they always can solve their problems by the purge if they want to. What a weird coping mechanism to think about. Like, okay, well, I'll just wait until purge night and then I'm going to do everything in my power to during purge night take out all of the, you know, all of the hate and all of the the aggression that I have felt towards these folks over time. Yeah. And like the premise of it is, well, you get out your violence and anger and then you don't do it during the other, you know, 364 and a half days out of the year. But the reality being a human being is not, that's not how that that works. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You don't just like empty the tank and then you're like, okay, cool. No big deal. Good till next March. Yeah. It's fine. Not only do you not empty the tank, you are filling the tank at every given moment during your life. Yeah. 
knowing that eventually you're going to be able to take it out on people, it's not going to make you nicer. It's not going to change your life. It's going to make you more jaded and have a nasty chip on your shoulder. And that's kind of the point of the second movie. Yeah. That's kind of Leo's journey is deciding whether he wants to get all of his rage uh, directed at one person who caused him a lot of harm, get all of it out, or, you know, like, will that actually help is basically the, yeah. the sort of question he's grappling with the whole time. Like, is it worth it? Like, you have this opportunity to get your revenge or settle the score with somebody, but are you really going to feel better? Is that going to help anything to be able to do that? Well, I guess he gets his answer because yeah. in, the, in the third movie, he's like, nope, we're, yeah. we're not about this. Yeah. And, and I have read that he's going to come back, which I'm so excited about. That's awesome. Yeah. They're going to make a sixth one. So originally, this one was going to be the last one, election sure. year. And then they did, you know, the first purge in the TV show and the forever purge. And then they said, OK, the forever purge is the last one. But apparently Jason Blum has said he and the director have already talked to Frank Griot and they're going to bring him back and they're going to do a six one, which I'm so excited because Leo's my favorite character. So I'm just like, yes, I want to see what Leo is doing now. Jason Blum just can't stop himself. He he's like, he's no. like, oh, another one for the franchise. Yes. Like I'm in. Purge 30. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> he probably would. Forever Purge, I think, is set eight years after this one. Yeah. Right. OK. Yep. So that would be two election cycles. Exactly. OK. Which means that we don't have Senator Mitchell anymore. Yeah. Like her time yeah. is up. Charlie as... is not president anymore. Right. And Forever Purge kind of goes in a different direction, which I appreciate. Like, yeah. I like to see the... Um, I think that's one of the most interesting things about a lot of zombie franchises is to see the different cross-sections of society and how yeah. they experience it. That's one of the reasons why I loved World War Z, the book. Not so much the movie. It didn't have the same charm. Yeah. But especially with these Purge movies, I really enjoy seeing the different like striations of society and how each one of them experience the purge. Because in the first one, we have Ethan Hawke, who's like upper middle class, uh, very well off. And then I'm not sure about anarchy, but in this one, we see sort of, I wouldn't say like, no, I guess I can say it like, what lower class folks, lower income folks, yeah, lower, lower income folks, what lower income folks would experience yeah. in this situation. So hate saying class but what it reminded me of like when you think about okay well if you're in a purge situation why would you stay why wouldn't you just like board up your windows and go go somewhere and it reminded me of how people treat folks who live in areas that experience natural disasters just for example new orleans yep the east coast of florida or really any coastal area in florida galveston and um, the gulf in texas people constantly ask like and we're not talking like new builds along a river or something like that. yeah that's that's something totally different we're talking about established communities for hundreds of years that have been in places that do experience natural disasters because you don't frequently hear the same language being used for folks who live in like Oklahoma or Kansas like well why don't you move you don't really hear that but that's because it's not the south where a lot of black folks live yeah a lot of black folks and a lot of poor people yeah so 
it reminded me of the language that we use for criticizing people who decide to stay during natural disasters like hurricanes and storm surges. Um, so what did you think about that? Like, uh, I think that there's a pretty clear parallel there. Oh, yeah, there's there's absolutely a clear parallel there. Because I mean, you know, I remember very vividly, you know, all of all of the stuff after Katrina, you know, I pay attention to hurricanes in New Orleans, because my family's from there. And Katrina was uh, a really big thing. I mean, that affected my family. And I can remember people saying, like, well, why didn't people leave? Or why did people have to be evacuated? Like, all those people in the Superdome that had to be evacuated there, like, it, the dome wouldn't have been such a crisis if there weren't so many people there. Why didn't these people evacuate? Like, they couldn't. Like, people, <laughs> like, yeah. you have to have money to be able to evacuate. You have to have a car, first of all, which uh, a lot of poor folks do not have or do not have reliable transportation. You have to have money for gas. Uh, you have to be able to up and go and you also have to be able to up and go with the assurance that if the storm turns out to be nothing you won't get fired for being hundreds if not thousands of miles away from your job yeah so i feel like this movie does a great job of demonstrating that too Mm -hmm. with all of the folks that we see Joe and Lainey and Marcos interacting with uh all of the folks under Dante's care they're all in that situation and so they've made do and they've figured out how to have kind of mutual aid and community care one of the things Dante points out that we never think about in natural disasters is uh Leo asks him who knows about this space the underground triage unit and Dante says only the volunteers and the homeless that have no place else to go Mm -hmm. like hello, homeless people can't evacuate. Like, yeah. you know, uh, we don't have good social programs in place to help homeless people evacuate from a natural disaster. Unhoused people is actually the term I should be using. Excuse mm-hmm. me. I think there's such a parallel there. Again, like another reason why I think horror can really like demonstrate like actual problems with society in a, in a fictionalized way, in a way that can sometimes make people think like, My hope with stuff like this is always that somebody watches, you know, like the purge election year and they see the people underground and they hear Dante and Lainey talking about the need for like community care and how people don't have anywhere else to go. And my deepest hope is that somebody would watch that and say, oh, my God, I never thought about that. Like, I never thought about it as it relates to my community. I never thought about it in relation to that thing I saw on the news yesterday. Mm -hmm. Like... Uh, and I believe that cinema can do that. Totally. And even if we're not talking about people who are are unhoused, like, like, let's talk about housing insecurity. And right. I don't mean I don't mean like housing insecurity as in like, I might not have a place to go. I mean, the physical structure of a home or of a place that you live, yeah. even if it's not a house, apartment, whatever it is. If you have a higher income, then you are going to have a house that is sturdier. You're going to have a house that's easier to protect. And I mean, that also would extend to like natural disasters. So like you would have a house that's safer in a hurricane. It's probably more well-placed. It's probably in a higher area. Um, Same with like a tornado. You probably live in a brick house. You have a cellar or a basement somewhere that's safe, a central bathroom. But if you live in a house that is not as easily to secure or maybe in an area where the housing values are not as high, then you're going to have a house that's much easier to break into. It's not going to survive a natural disaster. So this is 
a great tool to show folks like, yeah, you can talk all you want about leaving in a hurricane, but if you're a victim of generational poverty or you live in an area that is, you know, exposed to generational poverty is a place that maybe hasn't been, it doesn't have gentrification right. that it can lean on, then you don't get the luxury of saying, I'm going to leave. You have to stay. And also you can't trust that your things will be there when you get back. Yep. And you can't trust that the system in which you live is going to protect you or is going to provide you, once again, a safety net. Yeah. It's just not reliable. It's not something that you can count on. And this movie shows you that is literally everywhere. Right. You might look down on somebody who stays for a hurricane and think, wow, that's so stupid. And it's like, okay, well, tomorrow, if somebody said, all right, there's a tornado that's barreling towards your house and you have to leave in 12 hours and you can't take any of your stuff with you and you probably can't take your pets with you. Yep. What are you going to do? Because in the days or, you know, week that it's going to take you to leave and get back, by the time you get back, looters might have broken into your house and taken things. What will you do then? Well, people would say, well, I can't leave. Exactly. It's like, well, then why, <laughs> yeah, why, exactly. would you, why would you be so hard on folks who don't have any other option? Yeah. It's not and, that simple. And I think the, the Purge is a great way to demonstrate that because it's happening all over the country. There isn't someplace else to go. Yeah. You know, you can't, like in Katrina, you can't go to Texas yeah. or up to Ohio. Like it's happening literally everywhere in the country. You have to leave the country, which we see in the Forever Purge. Mm -hmm. You have to literally leave America. If you can. If you can. Yeah. <laughs> and having to do that every single year, blow your vacation, yep. spend money to do that. And like what we were talking about before I'm, sh before, I'm sure that there's inflation related to that. Oh, yeah. So because... I mean, honestly, the reason why this happens is it's a capitalist construct. It's because capitalism wants you to spend all the money that you have in order to either avoid or participate in this thing. And it wants you to die if you don't yep. have enough money. It wants you to be cannon fodder so that you no longer drag down the system, which is hilarious because it's like, you know, having more rich people does not make an economy stronger, right? Right, right. <laughs> like it just you still need you still need workers. Yeah, exactly. But that just speaks to the disposability of you know people of a you know race, class, economic background, gender identity, etc. That the people in power view are the workers. Yes, you know that they are disposable people to those in power. And we see in the Forever Purge that they're like, oh, well, if we can't find disposability in the folks that are around us, then we'll just get them from other countries. Exactly. Which is a bold move. But another bold move in this movie is that the mercenaries that come after Senator Mitchell are 100% white supremacists. Yes. Like they have swastika patches on their uniforms and like the head of them has like white supremacist tattoos, which... It's very interesting that those white supremacists are coming after Senator Mitchell, and she is also white. Yeah. And she is also, she is high income. Obviously, she's a senator. She's yep. very high profile, but she is not safe. Right. Blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman yep. is not safe from these white supremacists because they are going to take her 
to the people in charge. So it's not only is it racist because during the course of the movie, they treat the other people who are protecting those folks in the triage center. They treat them as cannon fodder, even though they have no idea what they're doing. They only know that they're keeping them from Senator Mitchell. Number one. Number two, they're going after somebody who is their own race, but it doesn't matter. Like they're, they're in the pocket of, and they're hired by another white guy to retrieve this person. So a bold choice for them to just go full on. These are white supremacists. These are the mercs. And they're going after another white woman just to show you that like it, when push comes to shove, nobody is safe. Exactly. Yeah. And I, um, I like that they went for it with that imagery. It is disturbing to see all of the sort of hallmarks of white supremacy, all of the signs and symbols that have been are starting to be, you know, removed from our world a little bit in more formal settings. Um, To see them all up there up front is disturbing, but it's also really effective. You know who these guys are. And they are very easily the villains. Yeah. And also the white supremacy, like, yes, the Mercs are white supremacists, but they're just a reflection of the fact that this entire act is white supremacist as a whole. Yep, exactly. Because when you have disproportionate income distribution amongst race in America, it can never be fair. Yeah. It, it 100% can never be fair to have a militant act like this happen and not expect that poorer communities, which are disproportionately people of color, are not going to have the highest casualties. Yeah. It's like you are not going to see the level of carnage in a suburb that you are going to see in an inner city. And it's not just like uh, black people shooting black people, Yep, which I hate to even use that phrase because it's garbage, but it's also folks in the series coming from the suburbs to the inner cities to use people as target. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So it's, this is absolutely a a white supremacist militant act Mm -hmm. because it can't not be. Yeah. When you have a state sanctioned level of violence like this in a capitalist society, where we know how cities, how income is disproportionate across the city and the higher the population density the worse it gets it has to be a white supremacist act yeah so it's yeah. just it's obvious to me though that 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 the mercs are just simply a reflection of the larger white supremacy as a whole definitely so a bold choice yeah and i do have to say for as disturbing as the imagery around them is i really appreciated that they didn't go there with the dialogue Like their dialogue is very functional, you know? Yes. They're trying to find the senator. They're trying to track her, et cetera. They never speak racist epithets. There's none of that. And I appreciate that because I think that that would have been going too far with it. Like we can understand who these people are and what they're about just by seeing them. We don't need to hear them espouse their their views because we all know what their views are. Yeah. You know, we all know what they would say. So we don't need to hear them say it. Okay. So one theme that I liked, but I have a problem with. Okay. Is choosing a higher purpose over the self. Uh Uh-huh. So frequently in this movie, we see folks choosing the higher purpose over the self. 
Leo chooses the the higher purpose of protecting Senator Mitchell at the expense of his own body after he he gets shot. Lainey putting herself literally at risk, physically at risk to help triage people. That's her higher purpose. Um, Marcos is doing the same thing. He didn't have to come back to the deli, but he did. And Joe also does that. He is putting the higher purpose of helping to protect uh, Senator Mitchell over him being able to protect his deli. Interesting. But the rub of that in this movie is that it always affects poor folks. And characters of color. Yes. Yes. I completely agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't like, okay, yeah, Senator Mitchell is putting herself at risk by just existing and during this night, she could have gone anywhere. She could have gone into an underground bunker. She could have flown to, you know, Europe or something, whatever. But she never has to make the choice of like, yeah, what am I going to sacrifice in order to fulfill my higher purpose? So we see a lot of characters in this. Like we see Angel, we see Dante. Dante literally sacrifices himself to make it so that Leo and Senator Mitchell can get further away. And we never see that happen to Senator Mitchell. Yep. Um, Joe does it. He sacrifices himself for Senator Mitchell. He sacrifices um, to make sure that um, she isn't shot by the crazy priest guy in the church. But nobody else has to do that. Like, they're the only ones. Like, all of our side characters, but our main character, Senator Mitchell, she never has to do that. So that was one thing I had a gripe about. Yeah, and I agree with you on that. And I feel like they try to correct that in subsequent films. They Mm -hmm. don't entirely get it right. I hope that we can see that in a sixth one. Mm -hmm. I hope that they will further correct that because, yeah, that is a big flaw, in my opinion, that at the end, like... Yes, we do see several characters of color surviving and thriving at the end of the movie. However, all of the characters that have sacrificed themselves to get Charlie to become president were characters of color. Yes. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah. And it might have just been by way of like the cast of characters that we had. But also like if you look at it, you know, from now hindsight, it's like, meh, this could have been. Yep. Yeah, we could have had like the come to Jesus moment for for Charlie, too. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to try and do hard question, easy question. Okay, okay. Bring it on. Yeah, so hard question. Actually, one more statement and then we'll get okay. to the questions. Okay. So really, the, the entire movie is, it shows you that there's no fairness in the project. Right. And one thing I'm thinking about during this is... Uh, the cameras that they're seeing, they're seeing like a lot of cameras, like police cameras. Uh-huh. And there's a part where the mercenaries say like, hack into those or get access to those cameras. And at that moment, I realized that the mercenaries, because they're employed by the government, have access to all of this stuff. Yes. So it never could have been fair, even if we say it was like a pure purge. Like, right. It was just like... Everybody had the same access to everything, every, you know, whatever. If the government and these mercenaries are in charge of your means of protection, which would yeah. be the police, which, I mean, air quotes, like, do the police really protect people or do they protect property? Yeah. Um, could they ever actually, like, can 
state-sanctioned violence, there can't be any fairness in this amount of sanctioned violence if you're not in control of the means of protection. Well, yeah, I mean, there's no equality under capitalism, period. Yes, you that's know? right. That's true. Um, okay, so now to the questions. How do you think that the purge would play out in a socialist government? Ooh, gosh, that's interesting. I mean... Because we keep talking about capitalism in, yeah. in the in the context of this movie. So I'm thinking, okay, well, what about in a socialist government where people pay more in terms of taxes, but the amount of social services are, is higher, but then the government decides, well, we don't want to pay as much in social services. Would that, that happen? really <laughs> interesting. Yeah, I, I would wonder whether it would happen in the first place. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to answer having never lived in a place that has a socialist government, uh, because I feel like... My instinct, as with so many, <laughs> as with so many Americans, is to put a lot on socialist governments that are less about the truth of them and more about just my desire to have a different system of government in this country. Yeah. So it's kind of hard for me to say because when I'm thinking about socialist governments, I'm thinking very much about the sort of interplay of like, uh, the economics of it but what i don't know a lot about is sort of how the politics play out you know yeah does the socialism of the economics then influence the way that you know two or many parties within politics interact and intersect like how does that work that's something where i'm less familiar with it and i also haven't experienced it so i don't know okay okay so fun question in the sixth movie Leo Barnes is coming back. What do you want to see Leo Barnes doing? Oh, I mean, aside from just like being a Rambo-esque Avenger for anti-purgedom, <laughs> I could see a couple of different things. So I do know what they're saying right now, and this could change because they've said things about the other movies that end up not happening in that movie. They are saying that the sixth one will take a more global view mm, of the purge. Okay. So I wonder if Leo will be either actively in or called back into be kind of retired someplace and called back into the sort of world of purge politics as an advisor, Mm. as somebody who has been tasked with either protecting important people or somebody who, uh, because he worked in Charlie's administration, I mean, I, I don't know. I would love it if she were in it, too. That would mm-hmm. make me very happy because I want to see more from that character. Yeah. In particular, as it relates to her trauma, which I'll get back to in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would like to see him sort of come back as sort of a person who has experienced the purge from both a personal and a governmental role mm-hmm. to maybe be advising whether it's a government group or a fringe group of activists that are mm-hmm. working to stop the spread of the purge or prevent it from coming into another country or or something like that. Yeah. Well, what were you going to say about Charlie's trauma? Oh, just that I, uh, you can tell this movie is a product of 2016 because we know she has trauma, but we don't really get it addressed Mm -hmm. in a way. And I think we just were, we were not there in terms of like the mass conversation around trauma and PTSD outside of a military setting, I would mm-hmm. say. If this movie were made now, I think we would see a lot more of her 
really grappling with things and we see a couple minutes where they hint at her being triggered by the violence because we know she has lived through that immense violence but Mm -hmm. um part of the reason i want the character to come back other than just i think she's cool Mm -hmm. (laughs) is that i would really like to see her having gone through the arc of surviving the purge that resulted in the death of her family working to fight against it being in leadership and affecting change and then having all that change taken away like how do you deal with that as a person yeah and how do you deal with that being asked to perhaps like leo step back into the fray Mm -hmm. like how do you sort of simultaneously deal with that trauma and use what you've learned from that trauma to help affect change so i would really like to see more of that with her it's something that never struck me in earlier watches of the movie but when i was watching it this time you know having lived through the pandemic especially i'm just like oh man there's a lot that i would have like if this movie were made now i think they would have done a lot more with her trauma yeah like and and how she deals with it yeah because she really just kind of keeps trucking yeah. the entire time yeah. even while bullets are whizzing past her head which we know is not uh, probably not the most accurate depiction especially in more quiet moments yeah that she's going to be processing stuff but you're basically wondering is she going to go full sarah connor yeah, in exactly. T- in Terminator 2. Yeah. Is she going to be like doing chin ups and, you yeah. know, got a crazy bunker out in the middle of the desert and all that stuff? So, yeah. The one moment where we see her almost start to break, and I get it from a horror film storytelling perspective. Did they have time? <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we see her almost start to lose it in the ambulance the second time when they're rescued from the underground triage mm-hmm. unit, the paramilitary guys are coming in and Lainey turns the ambulance around. They come and get them. And she's watching all of this. She's been watching all of this through the window of the ambulance and she starts to break down. And then that armored vehicle crashes into them. Yeah. And so we don't get to see, and she gets kidnapped. So we don't get to see what happens there. But that was a moment that even the first time I saw it, I was just like, oh, 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 come on, guys. Like, we almost got something. And then, you know, obviously, you know, the plot had to move forward. But I felt like we were on the precipice of learning something about this character. And they, you know, obviously had to interrupt that for more more drama and horror and action but i I would like to see that yeah in a a subsequent film okay last question okay what would you do if you were in the purge (laughs) (laughs) oh the same thing i would do in a zombie apocalypse which would be curl up in a very tiny ball under the covers and just cry until either it was over or i was dead (laughs) So you're a pacifist. So I'm a that, pacifist. That, that does color the way that you would. And you know. I'm a chicken. <laughs> I'm both. I'm a, I'm a pacifist. And I feel like I don't have like good survival skills. <laughs> You've watched so many horror movies. You have I know. Have... You would think I would learn something. But you know what, though? Your Virgo instincts would probably kick in and you'd be like, like thinking ahead of time, you'd be like, no, I collapsed and I couldn't do it. But when you're in the moment, you probably be like, I know exactly what to do. Here's what we do. Yeah. But you have to be in that moment in yeah. order to know. I would maybe fare a little better in a purge situation than a zombie apocalypse situation. My big thing with zombie apocalypses is I'm like, I don't like to camp. And I feel like that's a big... 
<laughs> I feel like the camping skills are something you need to survive in a zombie apocalypse. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't have those skills and I don't want those skills. See, my, my zombie apocalypse plan would be to get in an apartment building that has at least two or three stories. And then I would destroy the stairs and have a retractable uh, rope ladder. Okay. So I could be on the second or third floor, but not. Yeah. you know accessible yeah. by zombies and just destroy the stairs and you know use the ladder to go up and down but anyways that's that's neither yeah. here nor there in a purge situation i feel like if i could afford it i would obviously just leave because yeah. that would be the easy solution get on a boat yeah so but boat you you could do a boat you could lay low in some place like very unassuming i know you don't like camping but it is just one night it ends pretty early. <laughs> you could just make an all-nighter of it. Yeah, that's true. And use like a hunting blind oh, and just yeah. like get up inside of a tree. Yeah. You'd have to be way out in the middle. Yeah. But I mean, there are there are arguments for so many different things because at that point if you're leaving your home, you'd have to be okay with like whatever happens exactly. to your house when you yeah. while you're gone. Um, hopefully you live in communities where bad things wouldn't happen. But in this, it seems like you don't have that luxury. No. Pretty much it happens to everybody. That's it. That's all I had for the purge election year. All right. Next time, I'm super excited about our next movie episode. Uh, we do have one more Midnight Mass, the epic conclusion. Oh my gosh. Of Midnight Mass. Episode seven. Episode seven. So that'll be uh, here in just a couple of days. And then our next movie episode, we're diving back into the world of Jordan Peele. Yes. And we're going to be talking about us. Yay. It's only, so it's only been six months since we did the first Jordan Peele movie, but honestly, it's been far too long. Yeah. I wish he had a thousand movies to watch. I know. There's always so much to talk about. And I'm really, I'm really excited about this one because there is some, I'm going to try to assign myself some reading ahead of time. What? Yeah, there have been a couple of scholarly essays about us that I heard about on another podcast that I want to maybe, I hope I'm going to have time to check out uh, and maybe bring some of those ideas to the table. I I'm, say this now and I'm going to run out of time. But. <laughs> I'm just going to reread the cool Twitter threads that I read I mean, afterwards. Too. Yeah. Because <laughs> while Get Out is amazing, lots of lots to chew on, us is like a completely different animal. Yeah. And it's fantastic. It's wonderful. I love it. But it is so different in terms of horror. But we're kind of doing us because Nope comes out like yeah. really close after that. Yeah. So we're definitely going to try and cover that too. I think too. it's basically the same-ish week. Yeah, it's the 22nd. So it'll just be a couple of days after. And we have some other stuff coming up yep. too. Um, we've got... Uh, Eventually, in a little while, once we do some research, we have our Anne Rice coverage that's yeah. coming up. We're going to be doing some Vampire Chronicles. We're going to be doing some Mayfair Witches eventually. All kinds of cool Anne Rice stuff because, I mean, we do love a we we do love all things Anne Rice. So we do, yes. We can't wait. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. We're Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok and Final Girls Pod on Twitter. 
Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Stay scary.